Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you. Hello, and thanks for listening to AllBetter.fm. I am your host, Joe Van Wee. Today is episode 23, Observations from a Recovering Alcoholic. Today I'm interviewing Dr. J. Anthony Quinn, the author of the new book uh, titled Observations from a Recovering Alcoholic, Why Human Connection is More Important Than Ever. Dr. J. Anthony Quinn is a board-certified orthodontist practiced in northeastern Pennsylvania for the past 44 years. For the past 35 years, he has been involved with both a recognized 12-step program and a weekly catechist meeting that is designed for healthcare professionals to help them face the special challenges they face when they first become sober. His experiences with these groups have given him insight into the true nature of recovery. Today we get to talk a little bit about his own personal recovery and what was the genesis of writing this book. Let's meet Dr. Anthony Quinn. All right, we're here with Dr. Anthony Quinn, uh, the author of his new book, Observations from a Recovering Alcoholic. Why human connections is more important than ever. Uh, Tony, thanks for coming in. Pleasure, pleasure, Joe. Uh, we were just catching up off mic of some family histories. Uh, so full disclosure, we are from Southside, if anyone's offended by the show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, Tony, everything bought, began in Southside in, in the Nativity section, River Street? I was thinking, Joe, on the way over um, about our background. And I grew up two houses away from your family. So the Walsh, your mother, was two houses down. And I remember her mother, who had the same great sense of humor that all the Walsh girls had. And I used to peddle, deliver papers in the morning. So I delivered their paper. And I got to know the family pretty well over those years. And I loved being around them. The, your mother lived on a duplex. And on the other side of it was her uncle, uh, Jimmy McHugh, who unfortunately was an alcoholic. And Jimmy, I have these me memories. He sat on his porch on the steps. And when we walked down, he would give us a quarter, whoever was there, to go across the street to a bar called the Dugout. Yeah. And the Dugout had no sign on it. No windows. No windows, but a little sign that said, Ladies Entrance on the Left. Now, I was never in there 
as a kid. But I should have known because I always wanted to be in there. And no one made fun of Jimmy. They were kind to him. And certainly your mother was very kind to him because he lived on that other side of the house until he died. We never, not only did we not know about alcoholism, we had no understanding. And I had no idea where I was headed. And I look back and think, wow, here was a 12-year-old kid looking at this situation and looking at the bar across the street, which I wanted to go into. Um, and never really went because I was afraid. Yeah. I, was, I had the anxiety that... What if, what if someone sees me? Even at that age, you already? Yeah, yeah, I already knew it. But that that history. And then from there, um, most of, I went to a prep in Scranton, a Jesuit school. And most of the guys I hung around with lived in Greenridge, where yeah. we are now. Yeah. And I found the guys, as I did in every place, in every institution I went to, I found the guys that drank. Yeah, yeah. And I loved them. Because they were my kind of guys. It's your pack. Yeah, my pack. Yeah. yeah. It was powerful. And many of those guys, including my, my cousin, uh, Tim, who lived here in Greenridge, who was an alcoholic. And most of the people in my family before us died from the illness. Yeah. Timmy got sober three years ahead of me. And when he got sober, um, so he was probably in his uh, 40s, I stopped hanging around him. Matter yeah. of fact, I avoided him. Yeah, he's got the plague. He's got the plague. And <laughs> he would see me and say, how you doing? Oh, good. Uh, but I never wanted to divulge anything because God forbid he said, you may have a problem. I just didn't want to hear yeah, that. Yeah. And so three years later. But he was my hero because when he got sober, I thought, well, if he can do it, it's, I can do it. It's possible. Yeah. That, I'm yeah. glad you said that because that does, you can be uncomfortable around him. Yes. But it stays with you. There's, there's a backup plan. I know there's a zip line I could pull here. That's Tim. Yeah. Uh, It's funny you mentioned Jimmy McHugh as you were speaking. I do remember stories and it was kind of cartoonish. His alcoholism when the Walsh's would describe him. Yes. If I'm not mistaken, I think he had a glass eye. Yes. He was tall and thin. He would take it out, clean it at dinner to just aggravate my grandfather. Yes. Yes, he did. And he would uh, take the breakers out of the electric box. He'd wait for my grandfather to leave the house because Ned would kick the tar out of him. He was a, Ned a was barrel a, of a man. Pretty, a pretty big guy. I didn't mess with Ned. He would take the, the fuses out of the box. And that was like, he, it was his ran- he would hold it ransom for uh, drinking money from um, Caddy, my grandmother. Yeah. And yeah. my mother remembers this as an early age. And I would think, how clownish. It just sounded like mental illness. I, and, oh, that's what an alcoholic is. I would hear people t- yeah, but back then, I say back then, I'm getting old. I am old. But back then, there were a lot of men, single men, yeah. who lived with their mothers yeah. or, or in these houses that really were alcoholics, but no one ever talked about it. House people. I would, house people. We call them house people. Uh, I wonder what, I mean, we can't measure it now, how many of them had PTSD or war trauma? I mean, that's a generation that yeah. just got through two wars. How many people come back and what you're supposed to now be, have an enterprise in your guts? Like, yeah. You just, I had a, there was, I had, um, my father had three cousins. Where do you get these names? <clears throat> Aki, Baki, and Ponch. <laughs> so you already know there's a problem here. Yeah, it sounds but like a I, Western. I do remember Aki in particular. He looked like uh, he had a little black bowler hat. We always wore a black suit and a white shirt and a black tie, like the Blues Brothers almost. Yeah. And 
I would be with my father. I'm a teenager in Scranton. And we'd see Aki early in the day. He'd be totally dressed up, tied in the right spot. And then we would see him late in the day. He would be disheveled and, and obviously drunk. It was a busy day. And I had a memory of him asking my father one day on Spruce Street. He said, uh, John, can you give me a couple of bucks? And my father very uh, righteously said to him, Aki, if I knew it weren't for a drink, I'd give you 10. And Aki looked at him and said to my father, you're no cousin of mine. And he walked out. Oh, man. <laughs> Grant was a different, oh, it was a different town. Yeah. Before you came on a week ago, I don't know if you, do you know my cousin T. Martin? He's a guest on the show. He works at Elaine a lot. Oh, it's another family member. Good. He gave a description of Scranton uh, of the time you're talking about. It sounds like a, a movie set, like gambling madness, uh, open air alcoholism and mental illness. My grandfather had a had a, a, a candy store across from the, uh, on Lackawanna, across from the Hotel Casey. Yeah. And I remember I was only eight or nine then, and he would take me down there, and I would sit in the front. There was only one candy case in the front, maybe four by six. Yeah. All these bars in it. And then behind the candy case was a big uh, screen that you could pull open. And behind the screen was a table for 10 for cards. For cards. He, ran a, he ran a gambling operation. Yeah. And the candy was the front. Oh, well. Well, it was a booming town. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Uh, the, the need was met. Um, Southside, did you start in uh, Catholic school? Just out of curiosity, was Nativity a, a school? School that Nativity was a school. Yeah, uh, it was a. It was early in school. It was a wonderful school. I, I, I give the nuns of Nativity any ability I have, either to write or have math, where because my hands get cut and whacked. Um, yeah, we all went to Nativity school there, and then um, then I was. Went over to prep, which was an all boys school at that time. Yeah, and prep at that time was last in the province the year before I got there academically. And they sent this guy named Father McElhoney to prep to straighten them out. They said straighten us and out. And Providence being the Jesuit designation, it was yes. Maryland Providence. Maryland, we are Maryland yeah. Providence, and so he came in, and and I was a freshman, and by the time we were seniors, he had whipped the class into number one. But there were casualties left and right. <laughs> He threw guys out left and right. I was deathly afraid of him. And of course, my father said to him, do whatever you have to do. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, I mean, that is nothing like today. Jesuits, it was, no. were most of the teaching staff Jesuits or brothers? They were, they were all Jesuits all. at that time. And they were all recently out of World War II. Yeah. These guys were tough guys. Yeah. They They're always that. soldiers. Yeah. Since Ignatius. But I, those two, I give great credit to because they did teach me a lot. Yeah, I uh, bet. But it wasn't easy. I bet. It wasn't easy. Got through it, though. Yeah. yeah. And then the University of Scranton, of course, another Jesuit school. And then the University of Pennsylvania. And then uh, I had to go. It was Vietnam, and we were going to be drafted. So I joined yeah. the Air Force. And then I did that. And then I went back uh, to the University of Rochester to get my wow, Air Force. Wow, I forgot. So, you were... you're. In the Air Force, yeah. yeah. Were you the years. any other siblings going to the military? No, because after that, uh, the draft ended, and then we had that long yeah. period of peace, and the boys got through it. And when I was in California, I almost killed myself in an automobile accident that was related to drinking, yeah. which yeah. I denied at the time. I said it was tired, of course. Yeah. And I was in the hospital for three months, yeah. and I kept saying I was tired. 
That's how powerful this thing is. Yeah. Yeah. And went on, went on drinking after it came out and said, well, that was just a bad experience. Let's move on here. That's terrifying. Yeah. Um, Just to dive back a little, how many siblings do you have? I'm the oldest of 12. So that's the neighborhood you grew up in. Everyone had, you know, six was a small household. Yeah. (laughs) It's wild. I, I think people tend to forget what that looked like. Each house could have anywhere from six to 12 kids in there. We just thought it was normal. Yeah. I mean, we could be at lunch because we went home for lunch and we have kids in there. We had no idea who they were and no one knew whose friend it was. (laughs) They just came in with the crowd. Yeah. My mom said you were a regular uh, of friends, uh, Uh some kind of treehouse incident. I think Matt referred to it. I think, uh, I think your mother was there. I was, I was a genius at that time. I was hammering the floor on the the branches (laughs) holding it up were dead. (laughs) So it cracked and down we went. Oh, wow. Yeah. We had some, some fun experiences growing up. So jumping back, you, sure. you finish your prep and uh, you join the Air Force. You, you meet tragedy in, in California uh, at this time. And you don't even question that it could be anything to do with drinking. You just, no, there, no, I'm not going there. Yeah. Then I'd have to face it. I'm not wow. going there. And at this time, how, how profound was drinking in your life? Like what did it, what, what need was it meeting? Was it pretty profound? Well, growing up, um, my father was very, very tough. Yeah. He was a tough guy. Yeah. And so we battled most of my growing up um, about my drinking. And I would be what's called campus. Te- I would be kept in for a month at a time because I got home late. It was yeah. alcohol in my breath. And I would get out at the end of that month. I'd go right back to drinking. Yeah. And try to get away with it. It was just the history of it. So... I became kind of a reward drinker. So I knew how to study and how to work, but I was always waiting for the reward for that. Yeah, that's real. So my whole existence, and I mentioned it in the book, was that when I finally did get through my education, now I'm free. Now I can enjoy the benefits of working so hard. Yeah. So that that was not a good thing. Alcohol became a reward system for me. Yeah. And yeah, that's real. That's powerful. Of course... If you're an alcoholic, there just is not enough. No. And so, um, and as we talked about earlier, and you can identify with this, I had a great capacity early on. The guys around me were getting drunk. I could keep drinking. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what that is about alcoholics, that their systems seem to be, their livers seem to Some be. Some people have it. Yeah. I heard Joe and Charlie try to tackle it once. I don't know how, on a Joe and Charlie tape. Yeah. Um, with enzymes. And I remember a book in the eighties. I don't know if you've read this. It's under the influence. It was pretty comprehensive study of, of hypoglycemia, the relationship with diabetes and alcoholism and how to metabolize sugar. I don't remember that. I can't, I'm not a doctor. I can't unpack what I remember reading that and thinking, Oh, here's an explanation that isn't spooky. Like to the genetic component of yeah. tolerance yeah. and why Everyone isn't an alcoholic with the physical intake. It was, it was pretty articulate. How true it was or how it held up through the decades, I don't know. I got to look at yeah. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Joe Van Wee. the host of All Better. And I'm also the CEO of Fellowship House. And at Fellowship House, we believe long-term recovery requires a personality change as well as a clinical intervention. These ideas can take several months to achieve. 
Our philosophy is to provide a safe, therapeutic, and exceedingly active environment for patients to achieve these personality changes and find joy in the fellowship of recovery, which will allow for long-term sobriety. We believe that recovery extends beyond treatment and peer-to-peer communities into real life. In Fellowship House, we provide a design for living that focuses on education and service. We have strong relationships with the 12 universities and vocational schools in the area and ensure that our fellows pursue their personal goals while entering sobriety. We also stress independence and responsibility, making sure each individual is financially solid and self and helping to make their community a better place. As a treatment center, Fellowship House offers both residential and outpatient treatment services to individuals and families affected by addiction and alcoholism. We're a DDAP licensed provider of general outpatient, intensive outpatient, and partial hospitalization programming, as well as a level of care assessments. If you want to find out more information about Fellowship House, please visit fellowshiphouses.com. Well, my own experience was that, and I, I mentioned this too, when I got out, I replaced the alcohol with, with more sugar. And yeah, we, yeah. we know lots of guys. I, I ate pies for a long time. I ate ice cream for a long time. I was always looking for sugar to replace the sugar that I had stopped yeah, using. that's real. And, yeah. My I dad became diabetic after he got sober. A lot of guys did. I in just, the well, the guy in Saturday yeah. lost a limb because of it and uh, still craves the, the, the sugar. The sugar is, uh, it's really, uh, there's a marriage in the dopamine release, yeah. in the production of alcohol, the need it's making. And just to have the, the, the skeleton left of drinking in ice cream, mm-hmm. I could relate to deeply. If I didn't have ice cream in here in the last year that, that I got sober, it, 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 it was going to be a moody night. I still have it. <laughs> yeah. And I try to Back resist up. it. But every so, no, what I do is I throw a few pieces of pecans on it and I think I'm having a healthy dessert. Yeah. Yeah. Let me solve this. <laughs> justify it. Yeah. Um, so you get back and you're, you, did you immediately start a practice or did you? Wh- when I, when I got out of the Air Force, um, that was in 1972. Uh, wow. I then went to Rochester. I got married. Right before I left California, went to Rochester, had two children very quickly. Yeah. And was in a, a extremely stressful, there were six residents in the in the program I was in at Strong Hospital. I was convinced I was the, the, the least able to be there. I was convinced of it. Yeah. Well. And um, so the stress of that, and it was all day, you know, 24 hours a day for, for two years, that we that I was immersed in the study of what I do, and that was very difficult to drink. Yeah. Though I do remember the professor, who was an extremely brilliant guy and very difficult. He did recognize my ability because in the second year, he said to me, he was calling each guy in for, and it was a gal in our program from France, to write a paper. And each, and I was worried about what was be the t- paper I'd have to write. And when end, he said to me, uh, Dr. Quinn, I wonder if you could bartend for us on Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> of course, I said, yeah. If I have to. Anything I get close, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so he saw my 
my strong side. Yeah. Uh, it's my, uh, that's amazing. Um, when, so I finished that. So, so I finished that in uh, 1974. And then I came back to Scranton. I intended to go back to California uh, because I really liked it out there. But this Dr. Fordham was my orthodontist as a kid. Fordham? Fordham. Walter Fordham wow. was a, a brilliant guy. Really, he was a great orthodontist. And he, he said to me, would you help me out for a year? Yeah. Because I need help. Well, that year turned into 44. Yeah. So I never left. And uh, it, it actually was, I had a wonderful George career there. George Bailey of, of, of <laughs> orthodontics. Yeah, George right. Bailey. Exactly. Uh, um. Yeah, I mean, you were the you wore braces in our area, Grant and Lackawanna. If you if you have braces, I don't know. Was there other people even doing? This? I don't. Even well, know. I remember I, I got was beat there up. Other options and, if you were Irish and, to, in eighth grade, I got beat up for having them. Now <laughs> you get beat up for not having them. Yeah, of so course, things did change. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, my sisters. I remember them getting cranked to wear rubber bands. And oh, they yeah. were brutal nights. It was it was pretty tough. Back yeah, and I'm much easier now, but yeah. back then it was difficult. Yeah, it was different. Well, it was different for your dad too. Your father, you, your father was my father's a general dentist. General dentist, yeah. Times Building. Yeah, in the Times Building, he worked. He worked very hard to raise us, but he had some pretty high demands on all. Yeah, of us. I bet. So I'm He's sure a tough guy, some, right? There was some cost to that along the way, <laughs> right? Um, do, at this point, where you're talking about now, so they, you know, you're, you're, you're taking on this this practice, you're going to help Dr. Fordham. Have you known anyone that had a crisis of alcoholism? Was there anything in your head at this point of what alcoholism was? Any training? Well, early, um, that's a great question. Early on, first of all, um, he was from up in Waverly and I was exposed to some of the Waverly crowd. And there was some pretty good drinking there. At about the same time, my, uh, my mother's sister, first one, young, died. So I was exposed to that. And then my mother's other sister also died, both at the yeah. age of 54. And pretty brutal. Yeah. They, they had pretty profound damage to their bodies. And as I talked to one of them, I, I, I saw her die uh, from a varices. The second one, I no, my second uh, aunt, I was sober. But my first one, I think was just before, but I'm an alcoholic. I never identified with myself with that's that. Not, no, this happened to someone yeah, else. That's, some, that's somebody else's problem Yeah, because I can control my drinking and my drinking is deserved. Well, you're the lead in the movie yeah. of Tony. And <laughs> I, I, I get that. You're you, That's how we're experiencing life. It's through our POV. Yeah. I mean, I have worked very hard and I am very responsible and, Got this partners who are, everything's going yep. well. What's wrong with a little drinking? Yeah. What's wrong with just blowing off a little steam? Yeah. Um, my first sponsor, or my second sponsor was also, he was a physician and he talked about they would study all week in medical school. The exam was on Friday. Then they would regurgitate all the information on yeah. the paper. Then leave, get out of the bar where they had a, a, a piano bar for singing. And they would sing and drink all night. And, yeah. and his mind, as in my mind, that was a legitimate release. And it was good for you. It was healthy Yeah, to make this work. I mean, it's amazing what we can. I had some friends later in life that went to dental school. And it's intense. The, the, 
the way they had to study. And that was the big relief. Even then that was like, you know, 15 years ago, they were heavy drinking. Yeah. Um, But you know, that's one thing we can talk about that, that a lot of those guys, and that's a lot of the problem with today is mixing up abuse with alcoholism. They're two major different things. And you, you know, I'm really glad you wrote that in the book and especially for families or I have friends that, they're heavy drinkers, but yeah. I wouldn't call them alcoholics. No. And can you make that distinction? How would you describe abuse versus alcoholism? Well, the simplest is because I don't think you can do it at the time of the drinking. Yeah. That doesn't work. But I remember guys that I was in the service with and that I was in professional school with. They drank one for one with me. Yeah. But there was a, a point when school was over. They got married and they had children and they raised them where guys like me, yeah. it was over, got married, raised children, but weren't present. Yeah. We were still out drinking yeah. and justifying it yeah, and, and showing up late or making excuses for it. The abuse guys, they just, that was a part of their life. Life can change for yeah. them. I think the two things that pop in my head when you describe that, and I'm reading your book, which as you could see, I've highlighted up and down. Yeah. And I've been hiding from my wife, so she doesn't, she'll know I owe the amends all the time. Yeah. But Leo, our friend Leo, gave her a copy to read. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of that, that what you're saying, abuse, alcoholism. And these are studies I didn't understand, but I, I read them not too long ago. Uh, Rat Park, um, which was late 70s and continued for about three years, pretty cool study of rats that would prefer cocaine if, if isolated, given the option to use cocaine became addicts. Right. But some of these cat the rats would, their addiction would be extinguished by joining a community that wasn't addicts and they would join the pack. The other study that really kind of replicates it since we're not rats, maybe right. socially or cognitively uh, was Vietnam. How much heroin use was actually happening in Vietnam for the soldiers, like it was phenomenal, like 30%, right? Uh, you know, I'll have to look it up. But upon returning home, the fraction that was fractional who continued a heroin addiction, the, the U.S. Army was terrified. Addicts are just going to come home. It wasn't the case. No. They came home and they didn't use heroin. And I think just to the averages of what alcoholism is, 10% of a, a populace, right. it was 10%. Of, of that number that continued on into an addiction and what, what was representative of the addiction, not only use isolation. Absolutely. And I think it's the same with probably opioids. Yeah. Millions of people have yeah. used opioids, millions and millions. Yeah. They all didn't turn into addicts. No. And so we have to be careful about condemning any of this stuff, which I no. try not to do. No, I think you did I, a masterful job. I, I got, yeah, I don't care what, what you do to get sober. I don't, whatever no. is great. But don't, don't, um, the, the move to, um, minimize yeah. the 12 steps, uh, and minimize us, con- us doing what we're doing right now. Talking. Exactly. Is, Connection. Yeah. Is and it's in the important. title of this book. As I went through each chapter, I got, I'll be honest with you. I got nervous of like MAT. It's such a, it's a, it's a hot topic. It is. And the, what you do in those pages is the same personal belief system I have. Um, there is no shortcut to 
we're calling it a spiritual awakening in 12 step uh, groups and peer to peer. But what is an awakening is assuming you're asleep uh, to a whole reality of your life, how you relate to people. Um, This is what religion try to provide for people, a new consciousness, psychiatry tries to provide. Um, You can't do that by yourself. You can't. And um, I, I, I'm behind it a hundred percent. The unique connection the, the the solution to uh, addiction could starts with connecting with another human being. Well, the, the whole thing starts with the inability of you and me to see me. Yeah. I simply, I can easily sit and listen to you and, and, and know about you. Yeah. Um, which by the way, don't have to say this. I uh, do not feel any, I am no different than any other alcoholic. The only thing that I did learn why I said I observed is because in my training, most people do not look at the other person. They yeah. simply don't. They worry about how they look. Yeah. So for uh, any kind of doctor that has to make a diagnosis of anybody, one of the things it's taught is physical diagnosis. You got to look at somebody, skin color, eye color, t- t- everything, Taking and make a decision. That's hard to do. They used to take and put pictures up for us and then take the picture off and say, describe the person. Wow. So do they still do that? Well, Observ- yeah. Cause that what most of diagnosis come from observation, observation, and, and talking dialogue. Yeah. So my observation skills, if I have any came from that. And so for the last, all these years I've been observing what's happening Yeah. and I'm troubled by now I I've gone through moderation drinking, mm-hmm. I've gone through sober curious. Sober curious to me is is all about abuse. What is that? Sober curious is yeah. like sort of sober. Okay. So you can drink, you can be sort of sober. Okay. You don't have you don't. Is have that an care. organization? Yeah. Oh, I'll have to look that up. I don't know if it still exists because most of them fall sure. by the way. But mm-hmm. um, the I think that's terrific if you are an abuser. An abuser. If you're if you're 25 years old and you're drinking. You're like too much all night. Yeah. Binging. And just when you're like, you're getting your life all fouled up, then you better do something. And if you can stop or drink a couple, great, do it. You know, falling in love. Yeah. You're an alcoholic. You're not going to stop. No. I don't care what they tell you. No, that's the distinction. Yeah. So they confuse that. They say, well, look, this guy got sober. Well, he wasn't an alcoholic to start with. Yeah. He was an abuse. He's a 25, 30 year old abuser. And he got through that stage and now he's going on his life. I wish some, I wish I were that <laughs> I just, real quick. I want to go back to the yeah. observation. Um, I wonder how many people could do that now, even in medical school with just the heightened war for attention between our phones, uh, the news cycle, social media, notifications, email, Facebook to look and observe someone's eyes. Less mo- observer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was that was a crisis for me when I got sober. I mean, My you're, attention. You're nice and clear. Yeah, your eyes are nice and clear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel clear. I got to yeah. take a fish oil, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> but I that that that's missing. Um, and, and I think with that, just forget the, the 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 physical act of observation. The the discussion. Like we're talking now, that's why I really fell in love with podcasts. They helped me. They gave me a cadence to listen again to information. I was denying myself, but I wonder how many people can do that now. Just observe. And and it seems like that's what you did with this entire idea of taking a shortcut 
abuse and alcoholism and, and what the solution was when it comes to medically assisted treatments and a full therapeutic or conversion or spiritual awakening or connection for the, the long-term solution. And I think it's, it's a crisis for people who are abusers. Do they get stuck now with a new addiction of a maintenance? Um, it, it was kind of, it sounds complex in its own way. Um, like what, I, I think what, if you're an abuser, then you just have maybe episodes of overdoing something, yeah. exercise, eating, whatever it is, yeah. which can easily be handled. But if you're us, if you're alcoholic and you get into that obsessive kind of lifestyle, I don't think you can break it unless you it, you no. step aside and you, you give some other people a chance to help you. Because yeah. uh, I certainly, and you know this too, I mean, I know guys have quit thousands of times. I've quit a thousand Mondays. Never yeah. again. I can't put up with this. And yet, a day later, yeah, it's the same thing is back again. I, I've been to 11 treatment centers and every, I'd say about 80% of them, I sincerely wanted to get sober. Yes. Six months later, it was like a different person decided to drink. Yes. <laughs> it was like it was like it was hypnotized. That's why I, I know treatment for me is the same way you unpacked it in here. It's, 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 it's daily. Yeah. And that was a very difficult thing for me to accept because, uh, you know, it, uh, my sponsor, who's a physician, always tells the other doctors who are in treatment, they're really hard to break through to that there are three things that will prevent them from becoming sober, health, yeah. wealth, and intellect. Ouch. Those three things will kill you. Yeah. You think you're smart enough? Yep. I have a job and I'm really not unhealthy. Yeah. And the one guy, he's trained, said yeah. he decided he would stop drinking only if on the morning he woke up, if his eyes were yellow. Oh, that's, yeah. That was his, uh, that was his end. Very rational idea. I, I believe <laughs> he was, yeah, right. he was convinced that that would be, if, if they got that, then he'd know it'd be, yeah. be okay. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. powerful. Yeah. I, uh, I can relate to it. Um, there's this Liberty and I, I think, uh, some therapy expresses the term counter will. It comes up in add addiction, ADD that I'm making a decision against you. And this is my act of liberty. There is no liberty in this. It's a paradox. It's totally insane. Right. And I'm sure you can relate and I can relate. I'll make a counter decision against yours, even if it's not to benefit me, just to snub someone telling me what to do. Exactly. Because you're domineering me. In that act of liberty, is this, this is where I think I'm exercising freedom. It's killing me. And I think really intellectual people who have addiction, don't are blind. This is their huge blind spot. It was mine is counter will. I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees. This, this will be like this Hemingway yeah. Liberty, this romantic idea that I, I, I'll be fine as an alcoholic. I'll, I'll, I'll just have to live with this condition. But what you said earlier about an aunt, and I, I, I know some experiences that that just isn't the case. Alcoholics don't die in a very uh, romantic way. It's, no. it's brutal. It's terrible. It's terrible to see someone yeah. to bleed, see them bleeding from their mouth, nose, and ears. That's it's pretty. And, and to say, I don't understand what I'm buying. And there's a cognitive disconnect for real alcoholism. Yeah. I can't keep that fact in my head to myself without a community around me. Yeah. I really can't. I've, I was talking to Dr. Nicolangelo today, 
and he was saying that the uh, movement with a medical treatment, which is fine, has to be uh, hand in hand with this 12 step program to work. And that no matter what, if you aren't willing, and that's the word, if you're mm-hmm. not willing to change, then, and that's what I had to say to Matthew, with, with his coaching, what are you willing to do? And yeah. until you say, I'll do anything that you tell me to do, you're not going to get better. Yeah, that, that exercise of, of will, I got on my, I, I'm an atheist, or I, I got on my knees and did the third step prayer. You know why? Because I don't want to be different. Yeah. And there's some humble fraternity kind of initiation in that, that I felt like I was part of alcoholics or, or a meeting again and, and, and had a relationship with my sponsor. He didn't care what I believed. Yep. He did not. He said, Joe, you could keep talking here. I'm not going to talk philosophy with you. I don't, I, he said, I don't like philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want you to die of alcoholism. Right. Will you trust me? Yeah. And that, it was the word faith. I forgot what the meaning was. Right. I thought it was asking me to believe in something supernatural. Yeah. Like, cause I'm, I have a Catholic background. Faith means, you know, virgins have children or there's spirit, there's a spirit world. I wasn't there. Yeah. And he said, faith means trust. And I trusted him. And I don't know what that is. Two alcohol, two alcoholics, addicts trusting each other. It's profound. Yeah. But I just wanted to dive back. Sure. You're, your ability to talk about MATs without stepping in a bear trap um, yeah. is really thoughtful. It's very considerate to not only social workers, the idea they're combating people who are dying from yeah. fentanyl. And I, I want to ask you, were you distinctly thinking to of medical professionals? Because that's a lot of your well, service. this is sticky. This is really sticky, sticky, right? Because um, I was talking to uh, Dr. Nguyen out in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me about a, a fellow addiction doctor who came in to see him, who told him that he made $600,000 a year before giving injections. Yeah. And Tom was horrified. He said to himself, what? is this what it's about? We got to make, we got to. Wow, man. He told me that he has himself 100 patients. He's allowed by the, uh, the, um, the government to have 275 patients. He That's kind of gross. He cannot treat 275 patients. Yeah. He's a good doctor. I can only treat 100 because I'm trying to save them. If I had 275 patients, I would just be injecting them. So let me, to understand this, 270 patients, the treatment now is just the administration, administering a drug. Well. Is there a dialogue? There's no. They're supposed to, if you uh, are administering the drug, from my yeah. understanding, you must agree to have therapy. Okay. So you must go. All right. Now. I went to, right. What's, what's the consideration of therapy? Right. How yeah. are you? Yeah. How you doing? Exactly. <laughs> where's and your so, arm? <laughs> yeah. So where's the intent there yeah. to actually involve yourself or doing it to get the drug? It's, this is really complex and it's not over because yeah. there's, there's a great cry that is rational and utilitarian. And I think dignified and compassionate to, yes, these are life-saving drugs. Yeah. But then there's this complexity. Yeah. But there's an industry behind it that we've never has caused some of this scenario to begin with. Just look at the Sacklers. This is what we're trusting. Yeah. At at what point is this going to be only what they're paying for? 
Well, that's a danger. That's a scary thing. Um, Now, I'm not saying cities or like a city of Kensington, for instance, you can't get dead people sober. This is a dignified thing. And the role of government, if they're going to lobby, might not be in the realm of spiritual awakenings. It might be keep people alive. How about this for a thought? And I I did write about this. So in our society, uh, we fear death. Yeah. I mean, back in... 1300, 1400, if you lived to be 40, you were an old man, right? <laughs> yeah. So now we're living to 90. Yeah. And we still don't want to die. Nope. So um, we also administer an enormous amount of treatment and money to the end of death to keep yeah. us alive. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases for someone who's 85, 90 years old. And yet we will not invest $60,000 on a 25-year-old so God. we don't have a million dollars worth of healthcare bills along the way to, to 60 to when they die. It's, Where is the logic on that? Why aren't we investing in the youth to okay. keep them alive? Not that we shouldn't take care of the elderly, but... It's a cultural problem. It's a cultural problem. I think, you know, we don't plan things just in our basic structure of government is based off of two years versus, say, like, say China, uh, I'm not getting into policy, but they can make hundred year plans because of the structure of government. So two year cycle is usually we, we also our private corporate lives are based off of profit in quarters. I I don't, no one's interested in social policy that has a voice or can get bills passed that. Well, in a capitalist society, we are built for profit. Yeah. An example is the um, the Alzheimer drug that just came out that has it's fifty six thousand dollars a year per patient for the drug fifty six thousand. There is no proof it works, and the pharmaceutical Biogen, it's a company, it's a very big yeah. company, has spent millions of dollars lobbying and bringing patients in to lobby against Congress yeah. to allow it to be given. There's no proof it works, and there's actually more proof it doesn't work. Yeah, it's frightening. But they have invested millions of dollars by Biogen, and they want it back. Yeah. So I understand that. Yeah. But fortunately, the FDA did back off and say, no, only under certain circumstances, and it has to be part of a trial to do it. Mm-hmm. But that's what we're dealing with, dealing with companies that have come up with tremendous drugs that have helped us sure. live longer lives. Yeah, absolutely. Or without pain. Or without pain. And, that- and so... Um, we have to balance it and it's hard when it's all about money. Yeah. And unfortunately a lot of it, now there's some dedicated people out there who are trying to treat patients correctly. And I do believe that there are some patients who will probably be on MAT for years and years and years. These particularly the fentanyl and opioids who may have burned out their complete dopamine set of systems. So yeah. they'll never feel okay. Yeah. And supposedly it's supposed to be just two milligrams. And that could happen. You could burn as you. Oh burn. yeah. yeah. That's, that's you, get, you get too much of that. Don't you finally just, the I system I have a work. little of <laughs> probably do too. We, we open up a lot here and there uh, uh, there's a couple of things. I just want to sure. make some distinctions, treatment, therapy, not MATs, but longer treatments, a lobby voices from the recovery community, your book included pushing for a long-term investment and in treatment, more addiction training, which mm-hmm. doctors don't get. No, they might get a week. They might get a lecture. Most of the guys I know 
who I've met, no one's had more than a week. Most have had a lecture or two. Last stat I read, 75 million Americans use illegal drugs at some wow. point. 22 million identify in a form of recovery, some form of recovery, whatever that means. Um, understanding addiction, we were talking about it before the show. Some doctors just think it's a genetic component component and oh let's just well that if that's the case give them medicine that's it why waste time talking and we know that is just not true with addiction so part of the problem is sharing that what what complex definition we have of addiction which could still be incomplete i agree why can't we all have this open discussion and start with medical schools and and getting a deeper training to addiction i mean and trauma like, right, because like all these disorders, ADHD, addiction, co-occurring, bipolar, depression, the, the, the source, more and more of the research is pointing towards is a trauma took place. And this is unresolved. And right. it, it's, um, I think if that's articulated well, the fight's a little less harder to say, okay, let's have longer treatment. All right, MATs work up to this point, but how far do you want to go? Right. What's the quality of life? You see us spending it for a quality of life to get another 10 years in bed, <laughs> like maybe, yeah. or five years. Um, and you can't get down the steps and you're going to keep, uh, my, my grandmother was alive for three years. She didn't come downstairs, but yeah. it was because of medicine. Yeah. I mean, at what point can we have this discussion quality of life at it, 25? You know, it, it, our healthcare system is in such crisis and uh, for, on many fronts. And it's very difficult. It's like trying to, you know, get the Titanic to turn around yeah. mid-ocean. And yeah, because there's so many forces that are, that are self-interested, yeah. some very good, some not so good. Sure. I think most of the people administering uh, medical treatment are trying their best to be helpful. Yeah. And uh, it's very frustrating because there's such a demand. Um, it is not the answer. This is a very... As you started out saying earlier, it's a very complex illness. It is. It has a lot of factors. It's mm-hmm. not just you just drink too much. And as we talked about, you take the drink away, the drug away, you still have the problem. Yeah. I am still an alcoholic. You're in a dangerous situation with a sober mind. I can still be restless, irritable, discontent on any given day and not even see it. So that's a mental issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I need someone else to see that. Yeah. Because I can't see it by myself. Your book uh, became a tool for me. I, 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 it's, it's great. It's, it's easy, accessible to anyone who's in recovery or beginning recovery or a family member. And the distinction every chapter makes is you're, these are the problems you're solving in recovery. A lot of these chapters, the continual treatment and it's just astonishing. It just reinforces to me my, I just be stopping drinking is the beginning of solving a far, you know, more profound and deeper problem that I want to solve. Like I did not just want to stop drinking. Right. I, that sounds like a nightmare to me. Like I wanted a new mind. <laughs> I think I mentioned in there that uh, my brother Peter said to me, now I had just been traumatized by a month and a half of treatment. Yeah. And he came, he came up from Philadelphia and he said to me, Oh, you're lucky. I said, what? <laughs> You're lucky. I said, what, lucky for what? He said, you got to step away from your life and find out who you are. Yeah. And I've never had the opportunity. He's not an alcoholic. He's a normal person. Wow. But thought the opportunity to be 
looked at, examined, treated to find out who you are, makes you a better person. Yeah. He could see that clearly. I thought it was a punishment. Yeah. I was put in an institution. I was punished. Did you feel that way at the time? Oh. Were you in early recovery? When he- I just got out. You I was in that six months or six weeks of, of uh, intensive therapy. And um, I resented the first four weeks completely because I thought they were let me go. I tried to be the perfect patient. And then I went in to get my date of discharge. They said, your discharge is not today. And I absolutely blew up. I got so angry. And I'll never forget little Alice McHugh. She was about four feet tall, two feet taller than she is. She looked up and she said to me, well, 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 the real Dr. Quinn just showed up. (laughs) Which then I realized, oh, God, I just showed myself. Oh, yeah. You're staying longer. Yeah. And through her wisdom, I started to learn that day. Yeah. And I still think I'm sober because of that. Because if they had let me go the four weeks, I don't think I could have stayed sober. Yeah. No. I was too too angry. Um, I didn't understand what was wrong with me. I just thought that I was a victim. I had a great line. I was down in Florida for the first time in a very, very long time. And I went to a meeting. There was a, a guy there from Boston, a little Italian, short Italian guy, a pugilist. And he said that um, his brother died from alcoholism and his girlfriend was murdered being thrown out of a truck on I-95. My God. And he said, I survived those things. Uh, and he said, you know, I realized along the way that I always felt that I was a victim. And yet in truth, I was a perpetrator. Yeah. And I thought, oh God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Most often that's right. I, I, I think of myself as a victim in circumstances. Yeah. When my wife says to me, you are, what's wrong with you? I'm immediately very defensive and say, yeah. what's wrong with me? What's wrong with you for asking what's wrong with me? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> like, immediately get that defense up. Uh, I, I, I have the same instincts I, and people I relate to um, the first time kind of confronting that. Like I, I didn't mind the process of the fourth step. I get to, I was making my case in the, the second line. I was like, Ooh, someone's going to listen. I am right. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, this one I'm going to be right on. Yeah. Um, and even if there was a harm to no fault of my own say, right. the power comes from what you just said. Um, you know, is this, am I, is my past going to now just be what I am? It doesn't have to be, or this, wow. this stuff can be resolved. You can let go. And it could be through the action of forgiveness. There's a trick happening. All my amends are going to be these resentments. <laughs> now, what's the fear with us about about the feeling if we do say we're sorry? Yeah. Somehow we'll lose the edge. Yeah. We, we won't have control of the situation. Yeah. And yet it is so much more powerful. And I, I've really, I've been so slow to learn that. I keep repeating the same mistakes. Yeah. Um, which I think is part of being alcoholic. Yeah. It's just... It repeating the same mistakes and thinking, well, this time will be different. They'll understand. Yeah. No, they don't. It's, I, I, um, I couldn't wrap my head around, you know, though having that repetition in my relationships, intimate relationships always seemed to, and I had to confront it. It was like, I'm, am I manifesting this? Is my behavior bring out the same reactions to all different types of people? Like, yeah. is this something? 
And I started looking at it, the, the responsibility and the power in that I could do something about this now that I've, and my sponsor related you, I relate to you deeply in a scary way that I was saying, yeah. I could hide this from my wife. She's going to know my, well, I think that's the hardest thing, at least for me has been my own in my marriage. I, yeah. I still heard a great line. A guy said, as an alcoholic said, recovering alcoholic said, I love, I knew this alcoholic. He loved his wife so much, so much. He almost told her. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. yeah well, I, I looked at this book as guidance. Um, I wanted to ask you something because I just finished a book. I think if every alcoholic that's married that, you know, is seeking help in the educational variety. Right. I, I like to approach help intellectually first before I know how I'm feeling. Cause sometimes I, I don't know. I feel like a right. alien. Sometimes right. I'm reading it and it says the cave a lot. And um, is this uh, from men are from Mars and women are from Venus. I had a, a, a you know, therapist my, who had me read it. It may well be. And I think it is because I remember I went and heard him. Speak yeah. Yeah. With, with Janie Gray, John, John Gray. Gray. Yeah. It was very, you think I learned it. Obviously I didn't because I did retreat to the cave. I, I was angry reading that book that I was this cliche because I knew this book was out for 20 years and I didn't read it and I read it. I'm like, man, is it my, that like, this is it. There's a whole book about how I like, well, I think the most troubling thing to me is in which I maybe hope Jane's not listening. The most troubling thing for me is that when I get out of that, whatever state you want to call that state, I step out in the cave. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it. It's over. Yeah. We're just going to go on now. Yeah. Which is so sick. Yeah. You like really I, should resolve it. Why, why are you like that? What I don't, because then I'm going to have to apologize. I'm going to have to say, I'm sorry, because I want to look for your part in it. I don't want to look at my part. Yeah. I want to, I want to say, and I remember saying in there when I asked uh, Gene M, I was furious one day. I was furious. And I said, called him up about my, whatever it was was going on. He said to me, and I wrote, he said, how, how, uh, how wrong is she? I said, what? How wrong? What do you mean? He said, what percent? I said, 90. He said, apologize for your 10. Yeah. And I, 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 I was dumbstruck. What? Yeah. What? And he was right. Yeah. I don't have to go in and get an argument about, well, you're more no. wrong than I am. Let's say score. that I apologize for reacting poorly, which is what would be most of my problem, yeah. reacting poorly to the situation. Yeah, does love have percentages at this point, this infinite idea? Well, I remember someone a long time ago, someone saying the, there's a very thin line between love and hate. Yeah. A very thin line. Yeah. And uh, I understand that, I think. It's uh, the horse of passion. Uh, yeah. One side's hate. One like yeah. my sponsor used to say, if I I, I, hate, I hate this situation because it means you could very well love it because it requires passion to yeah. do both hate yeah. or love. Yeah, and I I I, I love my married Jeannie now for over thirty years. I love yeah. her dearly. She's the best thing that ever happened to me, um, and she sees me very uncomfortably better than anybody. And sometimes yeah. I don't like it. I don't like to be seen for yes. who I really am. I could relate to that. And yeah. I think we're both lucky to be loved because I, I, I know I showed love, but it's hard for me to be an, an adult. Like I'm always afraid. I'm yes. just, I have this weird fear and I read your book and I don't see 
dysfunction. I don't read that. I read hope. I see, I see the same thing I want to do is seek. Let me challenge, get a little more uncomfortable. When I read about your couples retreat in one chapter. Guess what we did last, last week. We're looking at couples retreats. So your story is more than something I'm referring to. I relate to it. It's producing action. Uh, I love my wife deeply, mm. um, but she's healthier than me. Yeah. Not terrible. I get the yeah. same problem. <laughs> like she, <laughs> I get the same very deep problem. And it's um, instead of me always feeling deficient or afraid, I read your book and it gave me guts, like keep going, challenge yourself, go further. You could be wrong. You can learn yeah. more. Um, and I, I read this whole story knowing you for as long as I do. And I'm like, I, I could be, this is, this is healthy. We this isn't, this. yeah, this isn't, this is sobriety. It's not about not drinking. It's about why am I not connecting with people? And every, every chapter I read, I had to slow down a little. I was getting overwhelmed. Like, Oh, Oh, <laughs> last Saturday. Um, we have a friend of ours who, um, had a very serious lung cancer about eight years ago. No, 10 years ago, I think. And he had to go down to Penn and they took out his lung and we weren't sure he was going to live the rest of the year, 10 years ago. So at the end of a year, we got together with 10 guys, all at that time, maybe 19, 18, 20 years sober. He's still alive. We wow. meet every year for the last 10 years. Now, in that room, there's probably 300 to 400 years of sobriety. Wow. That Saturday meeting, I laugh more and longer and heartier than any meeting of the whole year because we laugh of the insanity of our lives. Yeah. And the great, we laugh at our success and our failures. Yeah. And everybody there is just like you and I. We're all stumbling along, trying to become, as Matthew Kelly says, the better version of ourselves. And yeah. Matthew Kelly really, he, he uh, has a, his first book, he's written 30 books. Yeah. The first one, The Rhythm of Life is a marvelous I book. I have to read it. He wrote it, it was 19 years old. Yeah. I think it's just, and it's, I think it's just been reissued. Um, it is. My friend, Carl uh, W. Waggy. Yeah. Uh, he, he's a, uh, been sober for a little while. He just handed me a book. Life is messy. He said, Joe, I heard you share last week. I really think you'll like this book. This is a great book too. You know, we haven't seen each other in 20 years. Wow. He's sober. I'm sober. I see him for a couple of times. The next day, the guy hands me the book. I'm like, this is, that's connection. I, I've talked to Matthew often and <clears throat> I, I, I love him dearly because he's uh, such a great spirit. Yeah. He is a spirit, great spirit. Yeah. And, um, I've read his book and I've told many people to read it because it just tells you that who would have thought you and I'd be sitting here. Yeah. Who would have thought that you're doing these podcasts, which are helping a tremendous number of people just to get more information about why they are. Cause we're all walking around. Why yeah. am I like this? Or why can't it be different? Yeah. In a private life. I heard a guy say last week in my addiction, I always thought I was doing better than I was yeah. in recovery. I always think I'm doing worse than what I am. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this was a way to explore beyond the uh, um, the structure of a, a meeting. Peer to peer is to maybe just talk about things that it's it's hard to talk about complexly in a meeting. Sometimes, um, let me tell you, we get this book. Um, there's a couple of ways that can be gotten uh, down at the recovery bank. 
Yeah. And um, the uh, Frank Bullock, who runs it. Yes. Has great been kind enough. I gave Frank a lot of books and said, you can give them away. Wow. So if someone really? goes down and registers for anything they do down there, Frank will give them a copy at no cost. If they don't want to do that, they can get on Amazon or on iBook. I will announce the recovery bank down on um, <clears throat> North Washington Avenue yes. um, across from the county building. Recovery Bank is open to all people. Uh, it's great resources from cooking classes, yoga. I'll put that on the website today. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, Tony, you'll be, th this episode might be out Tuesday. Next Thursday, is there an event at the Q&A? Yes. People in uh, Frank asked me to come down um, to speak or to answer any questions people have. But I'd like to, um, I'm on the Recovery Bank's board because we're trying yeah. to promote this. This is a great place for people to connect. It is. And there's a lot of wonderful people there who are doing all those things you said just to get people together. Frank had a vision. Yeah. All the research uh, about seven, eight years ago, there was all counties and SCA started doing research. What can, what can be a new impact? What, what are we missing before the rise of super fentanyl? But it was like, uh, it was community, community centers that have access to the internet classes, cooking, budgeting, resume building, um, stuff beyond the pale right. of just 12-step meetings uh, right. to engage in, in, in communal life. And Frank had a vision, and he's doing a great job. Terrific. And, and during the pandemic, Margie, people I reconnected with, my, my leaving the house felt like duty. I got to go down the recovery bank, food drives, all kinds of great stuff going on. Uh, if anyone's out there, it is from Lackawanna County or Scranton. Stop in and see how you could be supportive, uh, especially if you you know you feel like you're limping around. <clears throat> There's never uh, enough help down there that you can uh, find something to get involved in down there with them. Yeah. So I'm going to post this uh, on the website. We're kind of reaching the hour. Um, Absolutely. But I. Going by quickly. I, I want to thank you for, for writing this and coming down and chatting with me because um, it's this book. It, I think it's going to be more of a resource for my wife uh, of understanding. Um, you know, I clam up, I yeah. clam up in sobriety, and I'm, 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 so do I. And to see the solutions that you pursued, it's, um, it's, it's helped me already. That's two weeks. And um, I think it's going to help a lot of people. I think, I think you did a great thing here. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thanks. I'd like to thank you for listening to another episode of All Better. You can find us on allbetter.fm or listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Alexa. Special thanks to our producer, John Edwards an engineering company, 570 Drone. Please like or subscribe to us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And if you're not on social media, you're awesome. Looking forward to seeing you again. And remember, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're right. Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. 
If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you.